Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm Stephen Cox. This week, Speaker of the Washington House of Representatives, Lori Jenkins. As the House begins its 60-day term this week, they swear in a new speaker, one who makes history on a number of fronts. Speaker Jenkins joins us to talk about what we might expect on issues like capital gains, gun violence, health care, and more. Then, on our Week in Review panel, we discuss the final Democratic debate before the Iowa caucuses, plus the head-spinning week that was on impeachment. And finally, we've got a call to action to limit Trump's ability to wage war. That is all ahead, so stay with us. Representative Lori Jenkins represents the 27th Legislative District, which includes most of Tacoma, and she will be Speaker of the House when the session begins on the 13th. In her non-legislative life, she is a senior advisor at the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department, and prior to that, she was a prosecutor in the state's AG office. And we are so glad that she could join us to talk about the 2020 session. Um, I will just introduce you as Speaker uh, Jenkins, because by the time this airs, that is what you will be. So uh, welcome to the Program. Thank you, Stefan. I'm happy to um, be on the program. And yes, I I hope that will be true. <laughs> well, I, I certainly hope it will be as well. I, I can't imagine people changing their minds at this late date. But I, I will just start by asking you, were you surprised by your appointment as speaker? Was it something that you had wanted or hoped for? Well, I mean, uh, the way that uh, speakers are elected here in Washington is um, the members of the majority caucus uh, decide uh, by vote who they want to be the next speaker. And the reason I have the title speaker designate is that it, by constitution, it's one of the very few positions that the entire House of Representatives has to vote on. So by speaker, by the speaker designate title, that means that I was elected by my caucus to be the next speaker, um, and presuming that they will all vote for me um, uh, when when session opens. So yeah, I did. I put my name in. I met with members of the caucus. Uh, there were three other incredibly talented women who also ran um, for speaker, and we all got to present our case. And uh, I was the one chosen by by my caucus by a vote of the caucus. Well, congratulations again on that. And you know, I just want to touch on the historic nature of your speakership. You uh, were the first openly lesbian member of the House, and now you are going to be both the first female and the first openly lesbian speaker in the history of the legislature. Can you just talk briefly about what that that means to you? Um, you know, this has been one of the most significant things that I think I wasn't quite expecting when I was elected. I knew. I knew I would be the first woman. I knew I would be the first out lesbian, but I was not really expecting women uh, and LGBTQ people to stop me on the street and to talk to me about that. And I guess for me, the thing that's most important about this is um, there are so many people whose voices haven't been at the decision-making table, uh, these policy tables before. and. So I kind of view my election as a sign to all kinds of people who spent, who felt voiceless in the past that they are represented, that their voice can be heard and will be heard and should be heard, and that they can aspire to serve in these roles. I'm not a, a person of color, um, but I would hope that I'm, you know, inspirational to communities of color, um, that they just like me as a woman and an out lesbian can achieve this role, they can too. Um, and honestly, if that's the only thing that comes out of me having been elected speaker, that would be a really awesome thing. Well, I, I agree with you, but I, I think that there's going to be an awful lot more uh, just on a practical level. Uh, we know you as a member who has just gotten a ton done. You've gotten a lot of bills passed. And so I think uh, in addition to all that, the speakership is just a very natural fit for you. Um, I want to shift over and talk about uh, the 2020 session. So, you know, as we know, in 2019, uh, we had Democratic majorities in both chambers. Uh, and so a lot got done. 
and it's going to be the same majorities going into 2020. So I just want to ask about a few specific issues that are on listeners' minds, and I'd like to start with a big one, which is capital gains. Now, you were the primary sponsor of HB 2156, which would have levied a capital gains tax, and I think this was something that people uh, had very high hopes for, and it it stalled out in committee. And I'll just ask you what happened there, in your opinion, and, and how do you view its chances in 2020? Um, well, I mean, first of all, I, you know, I'm really proud. I was the first person to ever prime sponsor a capital gains tax bill. So I've been prime sponsoring that bill for seven years, and I probably shouldn't brag about that because it <laughs> ineffe- ineffective that it hasn't um, passed. But, but you know, one of the things was the first time, the first year that I prime sponsored it, uh, there was some polling done. And like less than 15% of Washingtonians even knew what a capital gains tax was. And what we've done is progress over time for people to understand that, um, one, uh, the regressive nature of Washington's uh, tax, tax structure and how unfair it is. We've been rated as the most tax unfair state in the nation. By Which is just incredible. Tax yeah. Groups. Yeah, I mean, and and just for your listeners to understand what that means, so here in Washington, the poorest 20% of our population spends almost 18 cents of every dollar they earn in taxes, whereas the wealthiest 5% spends like less than two and a half cents of every dollar they earn uh, on taxation. That's the definition of unfair. And part of the reason that that exists in Washington is because we rely so heavily on the sales tax, which is the most regressive form of taxation, right? Because it doesn't matter how wealthy you are or how poor you are. Everybody basically needs the same amount of toilet paper. Right. Right. So, so as a percentage of income, poor people are spending more of their income on taxes for that kind of stuff than wealthy people are. Um, so uh, so I say all that kind of as background um, to say, you know, I, the bill, uh, I will not, I'm, as House Speaker, I'm no longer prime sponsoring bills. Uh, there will be a proposal out there this year to use capital debt. Uh, tax capital gains tax funding to fund uh, high quality early childhood, um, especially daycare, which we see uh, it's uh, child care is in a shortage status for it doesn't matter if you're uh, poor, middle class or wealthy hard to find child care yeah. in this state. Uh, and so that's what it would be um, used for this year. I think what the, we're going to have to have conversations, though, on there's other ideas that people have to, to use that tax. Um, and we haven't really caucused deeply on it um, this year. So I don't have a prediction on whether or not it'll end up in, the final, in a final package. Uh, but I can tell you that there will be robust discussion about cap gains uh, again this year. And as you say, I mean, the the seven years that you've been working on this, I'm sure that we've seen much greater awareness, as you say, of our regressive tax system. And so that sort of awareness, one would hope, would lead eventually to effective legislation that would pass and begin to uh, address some of the you know the the inequalities in our in our tax system. Yeah, can I can I just add one of the other things that we have going Please. on, uh, which is um, a challenge with regard to any um, any t- taxes this year is, and it's in a good way. Uh, we have a tax structure work group that is being chaired by a representative Noel Frame and uh, Senator Lisa Wellman in the Senate. And that group is tasked with looking at our whole tax structure, what is working, what is not working, and how we ought to reform the tax structure. But the report from that, the first report from that group isn't coming out this session. It'll come out uh, next interim. And, um, And so I think there are also some questions about should you enter into should you wait for that work to get done? And this is a really robust group that's convening all over the state. It has um, it, it has ad- many different kind of advisory groups um, that are providing feedback to them, and we're really looking toward um, toward the results of their work to help guide us as we reform our our complete tax structure, which is something I believe strongly we need to do. 
Yeah, I mean, you're looking at two of the best members, but Noel Frame in the House and certainly Lisa Wellman, who we just had on the program last week uh, in the Senate. And so I feel like if anybody can uh, produce results, it's going to be uh, both of them. And that's certainly something that we'll be keeping an eye on uh, or an eye out for uh, as that report uh, looks like it's going to be imminent. I would love to shift over and talk about gun violence because I know that this is very much an area of focus for you. And, and you know, as we know, a lot got accomplished last year, uh, the passage of I-1639. I know that you were the lead sponsor of the Extreme Risk Protection Order Bill, the ERPO Bill. Um, but of course, there's always more that can be done. Um, 1068 would limit high capacity magazines. You were a co-sponsor on that. Uh, and any thoughts there? Well, a couple of things. Um, first of all, I just want to be clear about what a watershed year last year was for addressing gun violence. Uh, I chaired the Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee, which which hears all of the gun violence bills uh, before I became speaker designate. And there were, I won't remember all of them, but there were, we did at least 10 different bills addressing uh, gun violence, incredibly good ones, like making sure that law enforcement has the tools to keep firearms out of the hand of hands of domestic abusers. We also created some consistency amongst all of our protective orders to make sure that law enforcement really could implement them when they were doing temporary holds as a result of you know an anti-harassment protection order a domestic violence protection order we uh, banned ghost guns we prohibited ghost guns here those are the Washington 3d State. guns right Yes. Yeah. yeah. We um, we expanded extreme risk protection orders to make sure that those protection orders could be issued uh, related to uh, folks under the age of 18. And we also did some suicide prevention work uh, to make sure that we were kind of creating a cooling off period for folks who um, really exhibit a high propensity to to kill themselves with a firearm. Yeah. Uh, so th- those are, I think those are just five or six. I don't know how many I just listed. So we did great work last year. A lot of the work that we're doing now, Stefan, has to do with taking bills and legislation that has been passed in the past and making them really work for people much better. So a lot of the bills that I talked about from last year, we're doing that. We will likely focus on uh, background checks and making sure our background check system is really working here in Washington uh, this year. And Drew Hansen, Representative Hansen, is going to have a, a great bipartisan bill on that. Uh, I expect Representative Kilduff, I, who's n- the new chair of the Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee, she's indicated to me that she will likely hear both the high capacity magazine bill as well as the assault weapons ban and we'll have to kind of see how they um, move along for for me uh, I think high capacity magazines is something that I really want our caucus to discuss I can't predict yet where where that will go if it will end up on the governor's desk but I feel pretty confident we will uh, talk about it you know I will just ask about enforcement around 1639 um, I know that there has been pushback among local law enforcement in the state and I wonder if there's anything at all in your uh, purview that could be done to sort of strengthen enforcement uh, of some of the laws that uh, that were passed well I mean first of all uh, I'll just say that it is the responsibility of of local and state law enforcement and of the state legislature to abide by the laws that are passed here in the legislature and by a vote of the people. So those who just say, I'm going to enforce and recognize some and not others, I don't think are um, abiding by their constitutional duties and obligations. I mean, I, you know, this is, you haven't asked this question, but uh, we have an initiative that dealt with transportation here in Washington, I-976. There are many of our members, including me, who feel like it will be devastating to uh, vulnerable populations in Washington um, and, and to many others, but it's my obligation and it's our obligation to implement that law that's been adopted. Um, And we will do that, and we will do it in a way that protects vulnerable populations. So back to 1639, I um, I don't really know what our... what our enforcement authority is to make local law enforcement enforce the law as it stands. So I I can't tell you what that is. I do think we fund counties a lot. Uh, And, you know, we may need to look at 
how we fund uh, local law enforcement. If local law enforcement is going to say that they're not going to enforce the laws that are passed, then I don't know, maybe they don't need funds from the state. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so that's so an that's, interesting approach. I'm not saying we're yeah. going to do that, but I'm saying that might be one of the options. Yeah. And I, I do recognize, of course, that largely this falls uh, enforcement issues fall to the attorney general. Uh, but, uh, you know, it it really is. Uh, it's troubling when you see uh, local law enforcement uh, flouting, as you say, the will of the people. Yeah. Um, and I just want to add one other thing on this. The. This case is being litigated and the Supreme Court will make a decision on, you know, whether there are single subject rule rule violations or any constitutional challenges with that. And um, when that decision comes out, that may change what is left standing in that initiative. I don't I don't know if it will at all. But again, it's the it's the court who makes decisions about constitutionality. It is not a legislative body or a local elected official, uh, they don't make those decisions. Our court system, that is the way our government is set up. The court system is the one that makes those decisions. Yeah, co-equal branches and all that. And I, I appreciate you making that uh, that point clear. Uh, I'd love to shift over and talk about health care because, uh, as I said in the intro, you are senior advisor at the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department. So I know this is very much an area of focus for you. So Governor Inslee's Cascade Care passed uh, that it basically supplements the ACA. I think a lot of people were very optimistic that Washington could be the first state in the nation with universal health care, but a, a bill to just form a commission to study universal health care, uh, that was Emily Randall's bill, stalled out in 2019. Is this just a non-starter in 2020, in your opinion? I mean, I don't think it's a non-starter. In fact, I just saw Senator Randall last night, and I think she's excited about um, the results of that um, of that work group. But I, I would say it's not it's well first of all just to get a public option passed was incredible work that work started way before last session started and i mean i was on the health care committee we worked and worked all session long and it was really not until the end that we were really able to get that together now when you think about having a, a universal health care package which i'm quite supportive of the only way for that to happen is if you have the federal government cooperating with you because so so much of what pays for health care in Washington state and across the nation are Medicaid and Medicare dollars. Right. And if you don't have the federal government willing to let you use those in a flexible way to create a universal system, it's virtually impossible to figure out how we could make that work. Now, Senator Randall's work group may be able to figure that out and may be able to figure out how we can incrementally move forward. But this is just, it's just not... Um, it's not an, an easy task. And these ideas, these big transformational ideas that come to us, they never, this is one of my big lessons of being in the legislature, like things that I think are incremental steps being in the legislature, I have found out, wow, there are even smaller increments Mm. Um, (laughs) uh, because it frequently takes a long time, but that's the way transformation happens here is in a step-by-step process usually taking smaller steps than any of us really want to take, but that's the way you get uh, a majority of members of uh, the House and the Senate to feel good about moving forward. Well, this is much like what you describe with uh, capital gains as well. And so we can only hope that uh, the incremental progress is progressing in uh, in the proper direction. So we'll, we'll keep yeah. our, our fingers crossed there and we'll certainly be watching that. Um, I, I would just ask you if there's anything else that you personally are going to be focused on in 2020. Um, you know, really, I, I've, I have felt like my job when I, as a member or as a committee chair in a lot of ways was to be an advocate for either my bills or then bills that were coming out of the Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee. I think that my job as Speaker of the House is very, very different um, well, there is how so? Advocacy. Can you kind of unpack well, that for us? Well, right. There is there is advocacy that's a part of it. But my job now is to really, really listen deeply to my caucus and about what's important to them and uh, and to try and move forward 
the things that my caucus has identified as important. It's much less about, it's not at all about my personal bills anymore. It's really about um, my caucus and the Senate and the governor's office and figuring out how we progress forward once I'm clear from my caucus with the things that they want to progress on. So I I just want to... I certainly have a lot of viewpoints. I've worked a lot on um, gun violence issues. Those issues are important to me, but I'm going to be guided by my caucus uh, on that. Um, I come from a history of, you know, my first political activism and for many, many years was on LGBTQ uh, rights and anti-discrimination laws and marriage equality. And those are the things that brought me to this place. Um, But again, my caucus will lead and uh, on those things will lead me and uh, I will certainly let them know what my opinion is on them too. But, but my job is to really take what they tell me and to try and figure out how to make them happen. I just have a couple of questions left for you. And I, I do need to touch on GOP representative Matt Shea. Uh, he has been linked to white nationalist groups. A recent report accuses him of engaging in domestic terrorism So we know that he has been stripped of his committee assignments. Uh, The GOP removed him from their caucus. But people people absolutely want him expelled from the House. What can you tell us about this? Well, I mean, I'll be very honest with you. I think Matt Shea needs to resign from the legislature. And if he doesn't resign, he needs to be expelled. It's the right thing to do. Um, And is that within your capacity? Well, I mean, let me just say, I don't think he can serve his district or the state after the, you know, after independent investigators found that he'd engaged in domestic terrorism. But just know in order to expel him, that takes a supermajority vote, which means that Democrats and Republicans have to be in agreement about doing this. And so even if all 57 members of my caucus believe he should be expelled, we cannot achieve that without Republican support for that. Um, the the minority leader, J.T. Wilcox, and I have talked a lot about this very regularly. I don't think that we've resolved um, uh, what we're going to do. We will continue in dialogue um, on that. Uh And we've had a very open dialogue, and I think, he, you know, right now he and I might disagree on on some things, I think he's he's he said he thinks that Representative Shea should resign. Also, Representative Shea has indicated that he's not going to do that. Right. Uh, so I think we just still have more work to do um, on it. If I were Queen, he'd be expelled, but I am not. I'm not. I I will also just ask you because I, I know that you're aware of uh, constituent anger out there and activist anger. And I think activists are kind of searching for things that they can do uh, here. Is there anything that you would recommend uh, speaking to a a progressive, highly active uh, audience? Well, I mean, uh, first, I would recommend that the report has been made public. I'd recommend that people read the report, um, that they uh, and that they then communicate to whoever represents them. Uh, what they think uh, about, about what they've read. Um, I, I think that's the primary thing is people should make their their voices heard. I just think one of the hard things is they they should make their voice heard in the context of knowing that we Democrats cannot expel him alone. Right. And so I suppose those who are living in uh, districts with, Uh, Republican members of the legislature who are not in favor or have not come out in favor of expelling uh, Shea, those would be the ones to uh, target with phone calls, letters, emails, and that sort of thing. Um, I will just end on what I think is a a very interesting question that I want to get your your take on. So uh, in this year's presidential race, uh, people are looking at Wisconsin as the bellwether states. And you grew up in rural Wisconsin. You went to undergrad there. And I'll just ask you, in your opinion, what do the Democrats need to do to win voters in Wisconsin? Um, You know, it's funny. My parents uh, just, I think, arrived um, from Wisconsin. My wife is picking them up at the airport. Oh, wow. They were supposed to arrive at about 1130. Um, 
so I'm always interested to talk to them about what they think. They also happen to live, and I grew—I basically grew up in the biggest swing district in the state of Wisconsin. And one of my high school classmates, um, who's a republic, uh, an out gay Republican, uh, represents them mm. in the district. But I don't live in Wisconsin anymore, so I—I'm not there enough to say what Democrats. Um, need to do. I guess my general commentary would be we need to nominate someone who can win the presidency. Yeah, I mean, no argument there. And and as you say, your, your parents are in town, so it'd be uh, very interesting to hear what they have to say. And uh, perhaps we'll, uh, the next time you and I check in, uh, I can ask about that. Uh, I will say thank you so much for joining us. And uh, as I said, by the time people hear this broadcast, you will be speaker Lori Jenkins. So I will just say, Speaker Lori Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck. Thank you for having me. So next up is our week in review. And I'm just going to give you a heads up that there were some technical difficulties, as they used to say in the old days of broadcasting. I use Skype to record remote stuff. And a certain company who shall remain nameless recently uh, acquired Skype. And now the recording system has totally changed. So in addition to garbling the intro to our segment, uh, it also sounds like an AM radio broadcast from the 70s, uh, which I guess is charming in its way. Anyway, uh, we will work it out in the future. Uh, but for now, you are likely familiar with this week's panelists, Chris Petzold, founder and head of Indivisible Washington's 8th District and chair of the King County Democrats, Shasti Conrad. And we join our broadcast already in progress. Uh, we are in western Washington and it has been snowing. And so <laughs> three of us were just talking about how we are going a little stir crazy. How are you guys holding up on your end? Shasti, are you doing okay? Uh, yeah, I'm getting a little itchy, a little ready to, like, you know, get out and knock some doors, you know, do something active, uh, but uh, hanging in there. <laughs> How about you, Chris? Uh, about the same, and I'm having a flashback from last year when I think we had the same conversation. So. I think we did. Yes. Oh, my God, I think we did. Yeah, I think we only get together when it snows, so that is, there's a cause and effect thing going on there somewhere. Either we're getting together is causing the snow or uh, every time we, every time it snows, we have to get together. I don't know which it is. Okay, so shifting to a national stage, um, let's start by talking about Tuesday's debate. This is the final debate before the Iowa caucuses, and I, I think a good place for us to jump off is to talk about what was one of the, the prevailing issues of the night, and that was gender. Uh, I, I know that people were looking for this to come up because of a report saying that Bernie Sanders had told Elizabeth Warren in a meeting that a woman couldn't be elected president. Um, Chris, you tweeted that you loved how Warren took on the female electability issue. Um, talk about that. I'm not happy um, about, quote unquote, infighting um, with the Democrats, um, but this is an issue we just have to take on full stop. There's so much hand wringing about can a can a woman be elected uh, president? And, you know, we just need to remember that, according to the popular vote, a woman was elected president last time. Right. And of course, um, we can elect a woman president. It's about damn time. Yeah, I mean, and of course, the blue wave had uh, a record number of women winning seats. Why do we think this narrative persists that a that gender is still an issue with Democrats or, or is gender an issue with Democrats? Chastity, what do you think? I, I mean, you know, I, this past year um, as, you know, the head of a Democratic Party organization has been a real education in, in the fact that, you know, gender unfortunately does still play a role in how people perceive leadership and organization and, you know, your ability to be able to do your job. So unfortunately, it is something that I think, um, you know, still very much is a center, you know, and it should be a part of the conversation to some degree. I, I hate the timing of this. I hate the fact that it feels like um, it, it doesn't feel like a good right timing to be able to have a nuanced conversation about it. it How do you mean by that? I think the timing of it, of bringing it up now, um, right as, you know, Senator Sanders is top of the polls in Iowa, you have it the night before a debate, and, you know, the conversation that happened, you know, was in 2018, there's, you know, they've been on the campaign trail for both of them for basically a full year. 
Um, and so I feel like being able to have a really, you know, important conversation gets lost in the moment and, and um, hijacked by folks who want to use this as opportunity to be able to, you know, kind of like, ha- like draw ratings for yeah. CNN last night to be able to, and all of that, instead of being able to have a more thoughtful conversation about why, like, as you're asking, but I wish we were asking this, like, three months ago, you know, or it, there's plenty of time to have these conversations. And it just, I had felt kind of sick over all of this the last couple of days. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. And I sort of wonder, like, when do we have this conversation? Because I think it's something that's going to perennially come up until it doesn't. Right. Because the Democrats also used to say we couldn't elect a black man president until we did. I mean, Chris, do you have any thoughts on this, on when we should actually have this kind of conversation? We have to have it all the time. And I agree that the timing this close to Iowa is bad. Um, but we have to have it all the time. I was just, I was remembering um, a statistic I heard recently at work. And as a woman working in tech, the reality of gender inequality is is very stark for mm-hmm. me. Um, but the World Economic Forum um, posted that, or, or found that it's gonna take at least a hundred years before we reach global gender equality. From and now? So, Yes. This was their 2020 report. And um, the United States is not even in the top 10. So we have to keep talking about it. We have to keep pushing. Um, And I think, you know, were a woman to be elected president, that might help accelerate things. It's just mind blowing to me that here we are 100 years after women's suffrage and we're still having these sorts of antiquated conversations and now you're saying it's going to be another hundred years it's just very sobering but if i could just interject i mean yes it is sobering it's horrific all of those things but you know as someone who's like worked with people who have been the first and then also like you know i'm the first woman of color chair for the king county democrats which was incorporated in 1973 so we're coming up yeah. on you know like 50 years of this organization But as the first and having worked for the first black president, I mean, in all of those scenarios, we had to win first. Like it it was a dance around identity politics to be able to demonstrate that like you could win and you could win like, you know, with all of those things against you, you could still like get through the door and you could win. And then once you're through that door, then it's a lot easier to be able to say like, hey, look, like we need to address like who's at the table. This is you can by leaning into the different types of policies and people that you put center into that discussion. But I think trying to gameplay it now before you're able to demonstrate that like you can win at this level, that that's where for me I I just like I say I just hate the t- I hate the timing of it. And you know I mentioned and you you're bringing up diversity and I, I think that's the next logical place to go with the discussion, because as I mentioned, Democrats used to argue that a black man couldn't get elected until he got elected. But then, you know, we look at the stage that we saw last night and we started with the most diverse field of candidates that we've ever had. And then on Tuesday, we're looking at six white candidates on the stage. Uh, Shasta, you were tweeting with the hashtag uh, Democratic debate so white. What are your thoughts about how and, and why we got here? Yeah, it's been a rough, it's been a rough couple of days for all of those things. Um, yeah, I, it was. I think you know, it was. I was disappointed um, when Kamala Harris, uh, you know, dropped out, and it was. And I think her leaving the race, um, while you know Pete Buttigieg has has risen up and continues to be sort of thought of in this in this way of, of, of him still really having the potential to win has has for me really made the light even brighter around the fact that it is so much more challenging for um, women and people of color uh, to be able to, you know, be imperfect people who are running and to be seen as uh, having that true leadership potential. So it is, um, it's, it's really, it's really hard. It's really frustrating and painful. 
But I, I think what it's doing is it's forcing all of us to look into the mirror, including Democrats. I mean, that's been the biggest lesson for me in the last couple of years around, like, yeah. you know, coming back into the Democratic Party and realizing that, you know, so many people that you think your values align in actuality fall back into the same sexist and racist tropes that we we assume it's only the other the other team, the other side that's that holds those beliefs. And it's just it's not true. Well, yeah. And what I think makes this even more perplexing is the fact that, you know, we were just uh, alluding to the fact that if a woman were to be elected president, that it would sort of prove the point that a woman is electable. And the fact that we got a person of color elected president should prove the point. And yet, are we going backwards here? I mean, Chris, what are your thoughts on this? I, I like Shasti, I've been pretty sick about it as we've seen the people of color drop out one by one out of the race um and i just don't know what it's going to take to break through that i mean i i mean i guess i don't know and as a white person this is tough for me to even talk about because likewise yeah you know like is it is it a good step forward that we had so many even run and get on the stage to begin with i don't i don't know I mean, I was so happy to see such a diverse slate, but the fact that they're not there anymore, what does that mean? Is that even worse than them not running? I I don't know. I don't either. And I, I hate to think that it's fear uh, among the Democratic electorate that, you know, you're trying to essentially reverse engineer this candidate that's going to be acceptable to, you know, the quote unquote moderate middle of the road voter. And so you're trying to sort of chip away at anybody who you think might be unacceptable. Um, it's not a good way, as we've talked about in the past, to pick a president. Um, if I could just on the last point, um, I mean, I've I'm worked on dis- diversity issues and um, have actually been like a diversity facilitator from some for some organizations. And when you look across sectors, what you actually see is that um, highlighting identity politics doesn't work as well as like uniting people or actually improving upon creating a more like diverse work environment or, mm. you know, I've done it for university environments. And um, but talking about values does. And I think what we as Democrats, like we are, we get stuck in like wanting to hold up the perfect person that is the other, right? It's like Obama had to be perfect. Hillary had to be perfect. Elizabeth Warren is having to be perfect because, you know, we, we need them to represent for everybody. And instead, if we were to focus on, you know, values alignment and how their value, you know, their values stand best and a representative best of the most people, then you would maybe have a better shot of being able to get somebody who's a woman or a person of color through rather than having to tokenize them as like the one super person of that particular category that is going to have to make it through. Um, and so I think that's that's something that we all need to look at um, just you know on a societal level, but also particularly within the party. The other thing is that you know I think um, Julian Castro said this a few weeks ago before he dropped out, which is that you know it's really challenging when the first two states are Iowa and New Hampshire, and the majority right. of the primary and the, the the campaigns are all. I mean they've they've done like 40 trips to Iowa and New Hampshire over the last couple of months and there's less attention paid to going to South Carolina or other states where there's larger populations of people of color and you know that I think needs to fundamentally change um, you know in order for us to think about how do we make sure that our candidates are appealing to a much more diverse audience. Yeah I agree Um, and I think we should start like rotating rotating between states um, just to um, create more diversity and fairness in terms of who gets to have the biggest influence um, on the race. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about, you know, in the past couple of weeks is uh, billionaires, the billionaires mm. buying themselves onto that stage. Well, only one did, but um, it just, it's making me really sick. Yeah. 
I, by the way, I love the idea of, of rotating. Uh, and now I'm going to have to actually look into uh, how that actually, how that might happen at a, at a legislative level. And, you know, speaking of which, so we know that we're three weeks away from the Iowa caucuses on February 3rd. And then we here in Washington have our primary a week after Super Tuesday on March 10th. So that's a ways down the line. Shasti, how do you see the role of Washington state in the primaries? Well, I think it's an it's an exciting, you know, change in, in us, you know, having moved up and gone to the primary and that we're, you know, more central right after Super Tuesday. I my gut tells me that this is going to be a long primary, but I think Washington, you know, it's it's a player. You know, it, we're already seeing that there is a, you know, Warren has an incredible presence here in the state. The Sanders campaign has just had a hired um, a state st- a state director and field director and you know a number of the other campaigns are are you know showing up here we've had candidates come through so I think all of that is ultimately you know really good for Washington and I think it's good for the candidates to have to come and you know meet folks who live out here um, I think we're often written off as being you know just this like safe democratic state that doesn't really need the in, uh, interest or support or attention and that just isn't true. I think there's a lot of really innovative, um, interesting policies that we're doing here in Washington state that, you know, should be, should have national attention. And I think we're going to see, you know, a lot more action probably uh, towards the end of February, early March, uh, particularly around like the Nevada primary on the 22nd of February. I bet you a number of them will make quick trips up here to, to Washington to come say hello. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And also, I mean, it's worth pointing out there's an awful lot of money here as well. And so that's a reason for them to yeah. to swing through town. Um, this is going to be the first year that we have uh, voted to have a straight primary instead of a caucus. I'm wondering what you, both of you are feeling about that. Are we happy? Are we not happy? Chris? I, I've always been in favor of moving to the primary system because it enables a lot more voices to be at the table that can't participate in a day-long caucus. I know that there's pros and cons to both, um, but as I've been out on the doors, I, I, I do think it's good for us to um, be in early state and, be, and have a primary because it, it's, we need to re-educate our, our, ourselves on civics and really talk to our neighbors about this because it's not, it's not politics it's this is our lives and we need to engage um in our democracy and so i think actually the primary is kind of bringing more democracy to our state and i'm all in favor what shasti what are your thoughts on it yeah i i think that it's ultimately a very positive move um i think the primary is a lot more accessible i think that there will be more people who will vote i think that you know ultimately it it you know, more people voting, more people engaged is a good thing for everybody. And I think the primary does that. Um, although the caucuses were fun and they were raucous, um, it is, it's time. It's time for us to go to the primary. I always put those two words together, the raucous caucus. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> oh, actually, and then when Dukakis ran, that was, oh, God. Uh, I, I think people had a lot of fun with that. All right. So um, <laughs> shifting over to something less funny, uh, I want to talk uh, briefly about impeachment. So on Wednesday, Speaker Pelosi officially delivered articles of impeachment to the Senate. And as we know, there has been a lot of head spinning news going on around impeachment. But um, just briefly, Chris, this is what activists and in particular indivisible really fought for. And I'm wondering what's what's going through your mind. What was going through your mind as you were watching those articles of impeachment being delivered to the Senate today? I got to say, I kind of got tears in my eyes and, you know, I'm working from home so I could kind of watch the coverage more than I normally would. Um, and uh, I just, you know, it's such a sad moment in history. It's so grave um, it's, but at the same time, um, it's just showing all of our work that we did in Indivisible and all the other organizations really had an impact and it's accountability, um, and it's checks and balances. And I just somehow feel connected to our forefathers a little bit and sort of realize that what they put forth, we're actually really using, um, it, it's a it's a sobering time, um, but I'm proud of the part 
that I played in it and, and we as a movement played in it. Now, you mentioned the Founding Fathers. Pelosi actually invoked Washington when she began speaking. And, uh, and and speaking of Pelosi, we know that she was initially against proceeding with impeachment. And then we know that she eventually chose to move forward. And then she held on to the articles for a period after the impeachment before sending them to the Senate. Thoughts generally on how Pelosi handled this whole process, Shasti? I think there's probably a method to the madness. <laughs> I think mm. that, you know, I think that, that there must have been reasons for setting certain things in motion, making sure that everything was airtight. Um, I feel like they have handled, you know, in the last few months, at least, they've handled all of this with care. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, it's the timing is a bit challenging and, you know, it's it's smack dab in the middle of the primary. And I think there's six senators that are running for president. And so this definitely Mm. will impact that. Um, And, you know, I I have been impressed with her leadership um, through this process. And I continue to have faith that, you know, that the moves are that the moves are happening at the right speed at the right time. Chris, what do you think about how Pelosi has handled everything so far? Well, it's been a frustrating, but I've tried to trust that she knows what she's doing because she's kind of proved to me in the past few years that she does. Um, it's It's been hard, and we I feel like we had to push a lot to get to this point, um, but she needed to get make sure that you know the country, or at least part of the country, was behind this and... Um, yeah, it is bad timing in terms of the presidential race, but it had to come. And I have zero hope that the Senate is going to convict, but I'm seeing some cracks forming in the uh, vote for witnesses and documentation that come forward. And you're right, the the news that's come out even this week has just been staggering. I can't even keep up. I can't keep up with it either. It's going to be very interesting to see how that might potentially impact the Senate proceedings. And then just finally, uh, listeners heard my talk with now Speaker Lori Jenkins, and I asked her about the historic nature of her speakership. We talked about how she's not only the first openly lesbian speaker, but the first woman. Um, Your thoughts on that, Shasti? Well, I think, I mean, it's really exciting and it ties back to the conversation that we were having earlier. I mean, I I don't know many people who are not overjoyed with the thought of, of a Speaker Jenkins and, and uh, already um, I'm hearing reports back from Olympia that, you know, people are, are talking to each other more, people are working together. Um, and I, I think that, you know, um, I think she's she's been a real model for sort of collaborative leadership and it's really exciting. It's inspiring a lot of people. And so we're just thrilled to have her. Yeah, agree. Uh, and it's, I don't know, it's in some ways frustrating that it took this long to have the first woman, but Hey, let's, let's have it now. And I'm, I'm very excited about that. And also, uh, the Virginia ratified the ERA, so maybe there's some forward momentum there, too. I was going to bring that up. Uh, that was a bit of unvarnished good news in a news cycle that has been not so great. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so we'll take wins where we can get them. Um, yeah. Shasti, I know that you wanted to mention before we go, the King County Democrats are having a dinner fundraiser coming up, yeah? Yes, we are. This Saturday, um, the 18th, we are having our first big annual kickoff event for 2020. Um, and it's at the Duwamish Lodge, which is in just sort of south of Seattle. And we, our program starts at 5.30, doors open at 5.30. And we have Congresswoman Schreier and Del Bene will both be there. And Commissioner Hillary Franz will be there and, and uh, State Party Chair Tina Podlodowski. So it should be a really fun night. And we hope to we hope to have many folks across King County come and join us. I will have a link to that at indivisiblepodcast.org. All right, you guys, um, I think we all have to go watch Love Parnas on Rachel Maddow now. So <laughs> Chris Betzold, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And Shasti Conrad, thank you. Thank you.
So there's been so much happening in this news cycle with impeachment, with the debate, with Governor Inslee's State of the State address, with, the, hey, Ken Jennings winning the Jeopardy Greatest of All Time tournament, bringing it home for Seattle. Uh, that With all that, you could be forgiven for failing to also recall that just over a week ago, we were bracing for war with Iran. So as I mentioned, we are going to have to be able to focus on multiple things at once in 2020. As we know, on Wednesday, we witnessed history with the articles of impeachment being delivered to the Senate. And there is still an ongoing campaign to make sure that we get a fair trial that will allow Democrats to compel new witnesses and documents. And there's certainly been a flood of both of those things. And while both of our senators have declared that they are in support of a fair trial, their offices are saying that they are still hearing from a majority of pro-Trump voices. So do call up and make your voice heard. On the war front, there are spots of some guarded good news, which, of course, is a relative term right now. Tensions have eased with Iran for the time being. But there are two bills in the House to limit Trump's ability to unilaterally wage war in the future. The first is Representative Barbara Lee's bill, HRES 2456, which would repeal the 2002 Authorization for Use of Military Force, AUMF. You will remember that this was introduced in the wake of 9-11, and it has no business being used by Trump for well, anything. The other is Representative Rokana's bill, HRS 5543, which would block Trump from using any funds specifically for war with Iran. Call your representative and tell them to support both of these resolutions. And then on the Senate side, there are a number of bills and resolutions, too. Um, a couple in particular to keep your eye on. Our very own Senator Maria Cantwell has co-sponsored a bill with Bernie Sanders, SB 3159, the No War Against Iran Act, which, like the Rokana bill, denies the Pentagon funds for any unauthorized use of military force against Iran. And then there is Senate Resolution 63, which would assert Congress War Powers Authority. This was introduced by Senator Tim Kaine and co-sponsored by Senator Patty Murray. And uh, more good news, it's looking like it has enough votes to pass. So when you call our senators about a fair impeachment trial, you can also thank them for their work on both of these measures. We don't know what's going to happen if and when any of these reach Trump's desk. I've heard pundits on the right saying that vetoing something on Iran right now would be a political liability for Trump. So it is important that we do everything in our power to get them on Trump's desk. Oh, one last thing before we go. If you have not heard yet, the Seattle Women's March has been rescheduled. It was supposed to be held this Saturday the 18th, but because of the snow, did I mention there's been some snow? The march has been moved to March 8th, which is International Women's Day. There are, however, a number of other marches still scheduled in the state in Wenatchee, Mount Vernon, Bellingham, Bainbridge Island, Longview, Yakima, and Richland. I have a link where you can find information about all of those. But whatever you wind up doing this weekend, please stay warm, stay safe, and as always, thank you for all you do and know that we are in this together. And that is it for this week's show. You can find links to everything that we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. To get in touch, you can email us at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer, Charlotte Gettleman. Do again to my guest speaker, Lori Jenkins. Special thanks to Dan Frizzell and Mark Hertz. Extra special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.